the only way to get to God? I mean, doesn't that sound a little bit arrogant? What about all the people who haven't heard the name Jesus? And how can you say Jesus is the only way? I'm not. Jesus said it. Take it up with him. Jesus said it. Take it up with him. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets the Father but by me. In Acts 4.29, it says, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. But if someone's gonna speak on physics, listen to Einstein. On football, listen to Aaron Rodgers. It's not just Jesus. Muhammad made it clear that it's only by believing in Allah that there's salvation and everybody else is wrong. Jews have a certain belief that salvation is through them. Now Hindus will say, oh, everybody's right, whatever path works, but really all those other paths only work if they're brought in to the Hindu system. By definition, every single truth claim excludes everything else. What's amazing about Christianity, it's actually inclusive. Jesus made a genuine offer of salvation to everybody. You see, every religion says there's a problem in the world, but what Jesus said the problem is, is it's the human heart, that we have done wrong things the Bible calls sin, and that separates us from God. So no other religious figure paid for sin, it's only Jesus who paid for sin. If your car is broken and you need new spark plugs, it doesn't matter if you change the alternator or get more gas. You need to fix the actual problem. Well, the problem in the world is sin, and Jesus uniquely paid for sin. That's why it's only by believing in him and accepting the offer of grace that Jesus offers that we can have salvation. By saying that Jesus is right, does that mean I'm saying that everybody's wrong? Well, realize that every religious system, by definition, says they're right and everybody else is wrong. So it's not just Jesus. I'm also not saying that every religion is wrong in everything that they believe. When it comes to the identity of Jesus, Jesus said, here's the most important question. Who do you say that I am? Jesus said that anybody who says that he is not the Son of God is mistaken on a critical point that is tied to our salvation. Any religion, big or small, who does not accept that view of Jesus, Jesus says they are separated from him for eternity. Yeah, I realize that claim is politically incorrect, and to some, it's even offensive. But Jesus, the Son of God who was sinless, who died on the cross, rose on the third day, said that he's the only way to get to God. And that's a claim each one of us need to take seriously. Well, indeed, good morning, and we're glad that uh, you came to worship in the house of the Lord today. That video was actually what we used in student ministry this last week. Many of you know that I've had the opportunity to take on a few weeks here with the student ministry, and we are looking at some of the tough questions that we're asking in our culture and our society. And uh, that particular question we looked at briefly this last week, but it's a reality that most of us um, need to be able to understand because there is opposition in our culture today as to whether Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And when you are up against a culture that says, well, what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me, uh, your way's fine, my way's fine, there's a lot of confusion and it gets filtered back down through to our young people. And so students, we're great to have you out. Every week we have new students. And uh, if you're a student here today or if you're a parent, I encourage you to come out on Wednesday nights at uh, 6.30. Uh, we have a beautiful, and I told the kids how much it cost this last, $40 Bible, uh, apologetic student Bible that you saw here in this video clip that is available to each student that comes for their own personal uh, use and for that to be gifted to them. And if you'd like to be able to help with the cost of that, I've had people come up to me and I could still use some of those because we keep getting new kids showing up every week. So uh, please consider being able to be a part of that. I want to encourage us about uh, something you've heard and it's on your seat back. Could you take this card out right here? We have uh, the opportunity in a month from basically this weekend for us to be able to have a conference here and um, the conference is called the Plan A Conference. In other words, God has a Plan A for reaching people, and it's you and me. And this is an equipping time, but it's also going to be a ministry movement weekend, I really believe. And I want you to be a part of it. 
I am going to take a turn this week and not just encourage you, but we're going to take um, a little bit of opportunity to encourage others from other churches and networks you have. I talked to someone right before service that said, hey, I invited somebody from a church in Riverside and they're coming. And that's just so sweet. Take the initiative to invite someone. You will not be disappointed. And if you've not signed up yourself, just click that QR code or go to our website. You good with that? So do not leave these on your seat. They are not there for decoration. They are there for you to put in your Bible, to be able to put in your purse, whatever it may be, to have and to invite somebody to come. And the cost is on me if they don't, uh, if that is an issue with them. I also mentioned last week we had the trailer, and this week is the week that the movie, The Jesus Revolution, is coming out in movie theaters. If you know anything about when things premiere and come out, it's best to show up on the first weekend because that's what they really rate as to, uh, is this a strong um, type of movie that we need to be offering? And so I encourage you to go this weekend if you're able to go. And the Jesus Revolution is about the Jesus movement of while God poured out his blessing uh, back in the 70s. But as we all have been maybe tuning to this last week since I mentioned it, it's not just back in the 70s that God's revival and renewal is happening. How many of you have checked out some of the stuff that's happening online with the Asbury Revival? And the Asbury Revival is still going on this morning. Isn't that pretty cool? I just think that is so neat and how God's working with that. Um, And it's not just at Asbury now. It's spread to different schools. One is in my hometown uh, that I grew up in, and that's exciting to see. But uh, the Spirit of God... Uh, is working in the lives of not just young people on these campuses, but also in the adults and other people who are hungry to see a movement of God. As I mentioned last week, my question to you and to me is do we have a hunger to see God's movement in our midst? Or is it just sort of a ho-hum kind of week? Here comes another work challenge, here comes another social engagement, here comes another day of trying to bake the bills, pay the bills. Is there a spirit of expectation in our hearts for God to work? So this chapel service on February the 8th at this Christian university in Kentucky has now gone on for going on two weeks. And uh, they are trying to figure out how to allow this to appropriately continue to move forward. And so I would like us to pray here this morning for God's movement at the Asbury Revival and for God's movement upon um, the other campuses. I think a lot of national news is now picking this up from even NBC and Washington Post. And they don't know how to describe it because it's not about politics. What do, you, what do you do when you can't spin it that direction, right? This is about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and his kingdom and God's movement. And whether it was in the 70s when God moved upon the Jesus people movement, of which that movie's about that opens this weekend or even in our day and age, God wants to move, but he will not move unless there's receptivity in our hearts to receive that movement. And those students were just open enough in repentance and prayer and humility to say, we want more. So will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, here this morning, I ask that you would allow us to be able to draw near to you in such a time as this, Nothing particularly unique about this week, Lord, or last week in our nation, but you were willing to move in the hearts of young people on a campus that is now spreading to other campuses, other states, and even other places in the world. And we want to thank you for continuing to visit us because we do not deserve any visitation from you in light of our waywardness and our disobedience at time. But God, you are a gracious God. And we would pray here this morning 
that you would have your way in our hearts, in our lives, as surely as in the lives of so many others, and that we would find ourselves in repentance and in faith and celebration, turning to the things of your kingdom. And Lord, in that vein, as we look into your word here this morning, with words Jesus you preached to people on a hillside 2,000 years ago, may you speak them to our heart as well. And may you enable us through the power of your spirit to turn from any indifference, double-mindedness, apathy, and turn our hearts fully to your face and your kingdom's purpose. So Lord, bless the Asbury Revival and the leadership that's trying to discern ways forward. Lord, we don't ever want to get in the way of what your spirit's doing in our lives or in the people that we're a part of. But Lord, we also know that the adversary does not want this to move forward. And there is a need for us to be able to rightfully pray for the leadership and for those who are discerning your will. And Lord, may it continue to spread to other places for your glory as you draw people to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to invite you to take your scriptures. Jason, I got a little bit of a ring going up here. And uh, take your scriptures and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We are about to hit up a huge amount of scripture here this morning in the Sermon on the Mount. We picked this up a few weeks ago, and we said that Jesus is uh, inaugurating, in one sense, his kingdom um, vision for the people of that day. And so we've entitled this The Good Life. And the good life has not to do with if you got enough money or if you got the nicest car or the next house that you're taking on. The good life has to do with the goodness of what God has for you in your life in his kingdom. How many of you have ever been to an orientation? I mean, a work orientation, you got a new job, it's a career uh, change maybe, and you show up, and they're going to take you through the ropes and understand. I felt bad today with John up here. Apparently, my orientation for John did not tell him that the offering was at the end of the service, and so he's always working with the kids. But when you're new to job, you're trying to discern how to get your way around, and what's the expectation, what's the do's and the don'ts. And maybe it wasn't a job. Maybe it's like, you remember showing up at college the first week, right? Or you showed up a little bit earlier. They had new student, what? Orientation. And they showed you how to get around, the do's and the don'ts, what to expect, what not. Orientation is a word that we're familiar with. And I sort of think in terms of Jesus. Here he is. He begins to heal the sick, cast out demons. He begins to proclaim the kingdom of God and teach people. The visual that's behind you is the visual of the Sea of Galilee. And this is where he taught the Sermon on the Mount. And he had them sit down on this hillside. He was probably down close to the water because the water would give an amplified kind of effect. And Jesus taught them things about the kingdom, things they had not heard. It was new student orientation. The Beatitudes, which begin in Matthew 5, he was saying, as we looked at, blessed are you who? Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted, right? He was saying, blessed are you because the kingdom of God is available to all kinds of people, no matter if you're a spiritual zero or if you've been trying to figure out the God thing for a period of time. And so if you're a new student orientation here this morning, maybe this is the first time you've been around church or checking some things out, you're just trying to get acclimated, Jesus would say, good news to you, the good life, the kingdom life, my life is available to everybody. Blessed are you. And so they were taken back by the reality that they themselves were able to be a part of this new day, the kingdom of God. But... What do you do if you're in the kingdom of God? And so he begins to step into an understanding of the good life, the kingdom life, and how that life should be experienced. 
And so that's what we're going to be looking at in Matthew chapter 5 this week. Before I step there, though, I want to give the context, again, of the bigger picture of what the kingdom of God is. In Revelation, you will find these words in chapter 21. It says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. In the book of Revelation, who's seated on the throne? Who? Jesus, the one who was raised from the grave, the one who broke power, the Satan's power, and the one who gives eternal life. So the vision in the last book of the Bible is Jesus on a throne, and this is before an articulation of what the new heavens, the new Jerusalem would be. And he says from that throne, we will all hear it someday if we're a follower of Jesus and we're in the eternal realm, he will say, I am making everything new. So, if your body broke down again this week, be encouraged. He's going to give you a new imperishable body, right? If you're looking at culture and society and going, oh my goodness, it is so broken. Be encouraged. He is going to make all things new. If you're worried about, I don't know, even some type of material means, he is creating a new heaven and a new earth. He is going to make all things new in a visible, physical and eternal emotional kind of way. We know that's the eternal destiny. But we live in a broken culture. We live in a sinful world. We have a sin nature that doesn't always want to obey God. And it's challenging for us to understand, well, that's coming someday. But what about today? What about today? But that's where Jesus, right before he starts his Sermon on the Mount, spoke these words. From that time on, Jesus began to preach new student orientation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And we have to pause and remember again the definition of kingdom. Kingdom has to do with reign, rulership. He will one day make all things new in the kingdom to come. But his kingdom, his reign, and his rulership has come near when God himself came in the flesh through Jesus Christ and he walked on this earth. And so when he was looking into the eyes of the people speaking from the Sea of Galilee, he said, listen, this is good news. The kingdom of God has come near to you. Now they're like, you know, wrestling with their hands going like, is he going to make everything new now? Is, is he going to do away with the Roman rulership around us and, and all these other things? Well, no, because there is a much bigger time frame, a chronological covering over not just decades, but now we know centuries and even millenniums that God is at work. But his kingdom reign today that is near through his spirit of Jesus Christ who's operating in this very room and in your home and in your work situation, his kingdom reign here is as rich in its fullness as it will one day be experienced in the physicality of a new heaven and new earth. And so we shouldn't have our head buried in the sand. I, I see this a lot of times with Christians. They're so discouraged. They're so down about what's going on or maybe something in their own life that they say, oh, I just I can't wait for heaven to come. I'm that way sometimes too. I just can't wait for all wrongs to be made right, for Jesus to wipe away every tear from our high. But we as Christians were not saved for heaven. We as Christians were saved by Jesus Christ for the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is to come in its fullness, but the kingdom of God is at hand. So when we worship like we worship this morning, we are entering into a spiritual reality that exists in our current physical world. And I'm operating in the kingdom of God and his righteousness and seeking to live in that realm. So, when Jesus said before he preached the Sermon on the Mount, repent, which is a simple turn away from your way of thinking wrongly towards thinking about me and the kingship, 
Turn and repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, has come near. We have a lot to rejoice and be encouraged about. Even if you think the world is going to hell in a handbasket kind of idea. Because he's here and he's at work. But are we participating in that work? The whole plan A conference is for you to wake up and understand how you are a kingdom laborer. Someone who's participating in all that God's doing around us. And when you move out of your naturalistic, uh, temporary world, if you will, into kingdom participation, your life opens up into a dynamic that was never existent before. There's one more verse before we jump to our text today, and it has to do with 2 Corinthians 5.17. We've referenced it uh, many times, even in the last um, series. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. The new is Christ living in us, his kingship, and he changes the trajectory of people's lives. I had the opportunity this last week to sit down with someone again and hear the beautiful story of when Jesus takes a broken life and he turns it around and he makes all things new. So, with this in mind, Jesus steps up. He gives them hope that they are all blessed to be able to be a part of the kingdom of God. And then he gives new student orientation, which I will call kingdom orientation. And in kingdom orientation, one of the key verses we looked at last week was this in Matthew 5.20 from the Sermon on the Mount. For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we said that this particular verse was one that was sort of oppressive and devastating. It's like, well, who am I? I don't, I don't measure up to all those spiritually elite people. He uses uh, this word righteousness. It's a dikaiosine, di, 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 um, which is a Greek word that has a much fuller context than the idea of just righteousness or rightness. It has to do with goodness. It has to do with justice. And he says, less our righteousness, our justice surpasses all of the Pharisees and the teachers of all, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. But we articulated it this way last week. This understanding what was going on, in one sense, was not an oppressive thing of, oh, I don't measure up, or I'm a, I'm a loser. The righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law was of righteousness of action. Are you doing right things? It was an external boundary. The righteousness of the kingdom moves not to actions, are you doing the right things, but to the source of where the right actions come from. Actions aren't wrong. Actions are important. But our focus isn't on the boundary of the actions. It's on the source of the actions, which has to do with Jesus making all things new within us the life and the empowerment of Jesus the King. So, I want to somehow try to get an illustration of this for you. Because I see this happening all the time, all over the place with us, if we are um, Jesus followers. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works. Right? Right? No works that we can do. But it seems like once we get saved and we're in the kingdom and in student or in new student orientation, our focus begins to shift towards works or actions. And so we press the boundaries to make sure, well, can I do this or can I not do that? Is that wrong or should I stay back here? We are pressing an external boundary. It's like me coming up against the edge of this stage and going, okay, how far can I come without falling off? Our focus ends up being on the external boundaries with actions. But that's not where Jesus wanted our focus to be. Not foremostly on the actions, but the source of the actions. 
if you told your child, your little toddler, do not, you can have a cookie, but do not eat the cookie in the living room. Where do you think that little child's going to go eat his cookie? Right there on the edge of the living room to see if he's going to get in trouble. If he, oh, oh, I wasn't supposed to. I don't know why is that. But we do the same thing as Christians. We're like, well, how far can I go? It's, it's, it's is this still okay? Am I, is God still happy with it? Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I'm, and our focus is on pressing the boundaries of the action of what to do and not to do rather than where our focus needs to be, which is on the source of the one who helps us live rightly with the actions we're called to live in the kingdom. And so Jesus is trying to get their focus away from this supposed righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and to get their focus on his kingship and his leadership. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about entering into an interactive relationship in the kingdom of God, moving away from religion, rituals, and rules, and discovering true righteousness, daikokones, goodness, and justice in him under his reign. So we don't press the boundary here, we're actually pressing back in against him and knowing him. And so the switch, if you will, at New Student Orientation is away from all these external boundaries and an internal focus of knowing Christ and being in a beautiful interactive relationship with him and the good life. The good life is found not in trying out all these temptations or trying to pursue all these other things that the world says will bring you happiness and goodness. But it's repenting and turning and moving back towards the heart of the king. And you have your focus there. You will not end up in some of these other places. I saw this week. It says, if you choose to go to New York to keep you away from Paris and London, that's a good idea. Because when you go to New York, you will not be in Paris or London. So in the kingdom of God, you choose to go towards Jesus and you will not end up in some of these other places that are not good for you to go. Paris and London are pretty great places to go, right? But you're in this um, understanding that your focus and where your intentionality is needs to be back towards Jesus. So if you're a Christian today and you were saved by grace through faith, God changed your heart and you're encouraged, but you find yourself in bondage today, maybe bondage to sin, maybe bondage to indifference. You barely walked in here this morning thinking that you were worthy even to sit and to worship. Is it because your focus has started to be upon the actions and not upon the one who is the source of the actions? So with that in mind, our new student orientation is going to take us to a large block of scripture. And if you open to chapter 5 of Matthew, you will find in this section Jesus doing a few things. And in this section, Jesus is going to um, come and articulate some situations. And I put it this way, kingdom orientation Old and new moral reality is found in these verses. Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 48. And so what happens is Jesus, he shares situations, six. Six situations where the goodness that lives from the heart and through the kingdom among us, the kingdom that is now at hand, all right, it is going to do what? It is a contrast with the old righteousness that's focused on just doing the right thing and the boundaries. New kingdom orientation. There's a new moral reality. It's different than the old. The focus is on the king and his heart in the kingdom, not upon all these external do's and don'ts. And he takes these situations and he brings them to the masses that are seated there on the hillside of Galilee, and they identify quite readily with them. So these are the six. 
In verse 21 through 26, and we touched on this last week, it has to do with irritations with one's associates. Anybody there? Situation number two has to do with sexual attraction. Verses 27 through 30. Number three is unhappiness with marriage. Your marriage partner in particular, verses 31 through 33. Wanting someone to believe something. You're trying to force them to get them to see your way or hold true to something. Verses 33 through 37. Being personally injured or hurt by somebody who has wronged you physically or otherwise. Verses 38 through 42. And then having an enemy, which is verses 43 through 48. Now, as you can tell, the pastor this morning is a little bit weary going, how am I going to work through all that text in such a short amount of time? Don't worry, I'll get you out of here and we will get on with the children's ministry meeting afterward. But I want you to know that these six represent situations in your life and mine whereby we learn to focus on what the kingdom heart is and what the king wants rather than all these external boundaries of right or wrong. Actions are important, but our focus is not on the action themselves, but on the heart of the king and his kingdom. That's why Jesus, in each of these six illustrations, he says this, you heard it was said. You heard it was said because this is what you as Jewish people in your tradition, we as Hebrews, he was one of them, you have heard it said, and this has to do with the old rightness or the old righteousness. You heard it was said. And we looked at this one last week in, as it related to irritations with one's associates. And these are framed up in this particular kind of artistic way by Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. And we get frustrated, we get angry in our associations with other people. And so he starts out in verse 21, if you recall from last week, he starts out and he simply says this. You heard... That it was said to the people of long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. And we said last week there weren't any hands that went up when we said any of you fall into the, the sin of murder, right? At least I think you're being honest. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are remembering, he gives a couple examples if you remember, you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. You think, well, isn't that an action? It is an action, but it's based upon where the heart is concerning wanting to please the Father. And so the conviction that you have animosity, anger, contempt, sometimes even malice towards someone is a conviction in the heart. And so you get up, leave the sacrament of your offering. And for some people, if they were in Jerusalem offering their offering and they lived in Galilee, they, they had a good day walk to be able to get somewhere to get back to take care of it. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. He gives another one who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Kingdom orientation. There is a syllabus, and in the syllabus there is homework. But the homework has to do with the heart. And the heart needs to be the heart of goodness that comes from Jesus' leadership and his kingdom reign in our midst, that which is of the future, presently operating in what we're doing. Have you thought about this? What heaven will be like when it comes to no more evil, no more sin, 
No more reason to have locks on your door, right? I had my neighbor this last week say, hey, I set my car, my car alarm off because there were some people parked behind your car along the street late at night, and people have been stealing catalytic converters around here. And so they ended up leaving. And I'm like, dog, you don't steal my catalytic converter. Those things are expensive. Well, in heaven, you don't have people trying to steal those things. It's a beautiful time to think about. All that will be when he makes all things new. But that kingdom can be a part of my today world if I choose to participate in it. Yes, I'm mindful evils around me, but how am I responding to that evil? Somebody does me wrong. Well, I'm just going to get angry with them. I'm going to call them names. I'm going to get back at them. I'm going to carry around in my spirit contempt for them. I wouldn't tell somebody that, but I do. I wish them ill, right? That is not of the kingdom of God that will be in the future reign. So today, the kingdom heart is to go another direction. So Jesus says, you heard it was said, no murder. I sort of got that one. But then he adds, but I say to you, the kingdom rightness, kingdom orientation, is intense desire to be of help. No anger or contempt. No anger or contempt. If you remember you have something against a brother, get up. And, and go make peace with them. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. You, you know, if you're going to court with somebody, it doesn't mean you don't go to court to try to get some things ironed out. But on your way, try to figure it out. The kingdom heart is different. In the old system, hey, I don't murder. I'm good. Righteousness of the Pharisees, scribes. Jesus says, my kingdom's different. My kingdom goes far beyond that. My kingdom says, do not have an uh, anger or contempt towards someone, have an intense desire to help. No anger or no contempt. So that was the illustration we looked at last week. Now he's going to pop through five more of these. He takes on with his second situation, probably what is the other part of anger, uh, when you think in terms of things that are at the top of the list that are problems in our culture and how it brings about the demise and the brokenness of people's lives and families, Anger would be sort of at the top, but the next one would be this whole understanding of lust, as it's put. So look at verse 22, I mean 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. That's sort of harsh, don't you think? That's the same thing that people thought that were seated on the hillside. What? What? Cut my hand off? Gouge out my eye? What are you talking about, Jesus? Hey, just a new kingdom orientation here. Just want you to know that in the old system, uh, the old rightness, you heard that it was said that uh, you should not have intercourse. There should not be adultery, fornication with someone, right? But then he says the new rightness is no cultivation of lust. No cultivation of lust. Now, I don't think you see anybody's hands chopped off today or eyes gouged out. And he didn't literally mean that, but he was trying to articulate the critical importance that you do not let lust destroy you. That you choose to be mindful. It's not about adultery related to having sexual relations with someone that's not your spouse. Or having sexual relations, fornication with someone uh, that you're, if you're single with someone that, he's saying that's critical, yes. But it goes beyond that because your focus isn't on, okay, well, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't go all the way with them. Or, you know, I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't touch them, right? It's on these external boundaries. 
He's saying, no, you, you look, you come back to the heart of the kingdom. And the heart of the kingdom would look at any sister or somebody that's outside of your spouse in a respectful, rightful way. And you would not lust after that. You would not say, I want to be with that person or I want to have physical relations with that person to imagine yourself being in bed with that person, right? But that's, that happens. And it's not just with guys, it's also with women. And it's this idea that lust can consume the heart of a person. And Jesus said, do not even look with lust upon an individual, right-size them, contextualize them. Do not see them as an object of your desire, but see them as a sister, a created being in God's image, and stay clear, even in your mind. Physical adultery does not happen first, does it? Emotional adultery precedes a physical adulterous relationship. And it can be subtle. Some of you experience the power of that tactic in your life for the adversary to destroy you. Even now, maybe, what's going on? And your mind's consumed with the idea of, uh, of being able to be with someone or to mentally address people around you or the whole subject of pornography, other kinds of things. You're like, okay, it's consuming me. And Jesus is not here to smack you upside the head. He's saying, hey, listen, focus on the source of the right kind of actions. Because I tell you what, you go that path, it's better for you to cut off your arm and gouge out your eye than to go down the path where that's leading you. Because it will ultimately lead you into a hellish situation, if not ultimately hell itself, if you're not a follower of the king. So these are hard words that he's presenting to them. So that was example number two. And I, I just want you to know that as I just briefly touch on these, uh, we could almost come back really could. This whole series of illustrations could be a message series in itself. And so he pulls up the next one, which is right on the heels of this whole thing of um, sexual attraction in an unhealthy way. Unhappiness with the marriage partner. Verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now what you have here are three short verses that would take an awful lot of time to unpack. But where his focus is at is on treating the marriage covenant with respect and honor and your spouse with respect and honor in it. You know, during that day in Jewish tradition, it was different than the Greek culture around them. A man was allowed to divorce his wife, but a wife wasn't allowed to divorce the husband. It's a different culture, different kind of day understanding that. And so this whole uh, debate was going on with the religious elite of the day, with different rabbis, and each rabbi, if we unpacked it, would, uh, there were some lead rabbis, at least, that, that had some different persuasions. Uh, this is what's right, this is not what's right. If you were to go back to Deuteronomy, this is quite interesting. If you read this verse in Deuteronomy 24, which is the only place really in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible that talks about the whole divorce issue, it says this, if a man marries a woman who uh, becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if she leaves his house and becomes the wife of another man, it starts to articulate this, but can you get what was going on in that day? And, and one of the particular rabbi leaders of that day, he was, he was really leaning into this passage and saying, the Torah says a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. What? Well, what... What classifies as displeasing and indecent? What if the woman, like, doesn't cook her meal right for me? That's displeasing to me. Am I justified in divorcing her? Well, in this particular situation, believe it or not, a rabbi said yes. If she burns the bread, the toast, 
That's displeasing to you. And you have rights to divorce her. And you got to understand in that day when a woman was divorced, it wasn't like, oh, today where you like, well, try to buckle it up and make a living and do something. No, you were put in the outcast of society. If you were divorced, you got a problem. There's only really three or four directions you can go as a woman in that culture. One, you could try to find a rich relative that would take you in and take care of you. But even then, you would probably sort of be like a servant in the household. You could maybe find somebody else that would remarry you, but because of the shame and the scars of all that happened before with you, you'd be treated poorly in that relationship. You could become an indentured servant or a slave because you had no respect to be able to like start some business or work in some type of place. No, or four, you could be a prostitute. It was a crushing blow to women of that day to be divorced. And so Jesus is looking upon this kind of culture, and he's not pleased with it at all. He sees in this, this unhappiness with marriage, if you divorce, give a pink slip. You can give them a pink slip. Well, the reason the pink slip was given was because that would give them credence to be able to go back out into culture, saying that I was rightfully, in one sense, rightfully divorced. All right? There was less shame in that fact. But they were divorcing women because of all kinds of uh, silly kind of situations. And so the, the boundary lines, well, it, uh, give them a certificate of divorce. At least I got that. So uh, that is what's right. And one rabbi would say something like anything from burnt toast. Another rabbi would say it had to be infidelity. It had to be um, an affair that happened in the marriage, Right. And so all this kind of debate was going on, and this is chatter coming at Jesus, and he's trying to articulate this, and he's saying, isn't this external action of, oh, I'm right to do this, or I'll send her away? No, it's the kingdom heart. And so he turns and he says, but I say to you, no divorce, as it's then practiced. Now, like I said, we could talk a lot here, whole series on this itself. Some of you are in the throes of this because you have come out of divorce and there's brokenness in your life. Some of you may very well be contemplating this right now. But with Jesus, Scripture is true where it says God hates divorce. But God also hates brokenness where he sees that marriage is not reflecting the sacrificial love that God has for his church is recorded in Ephesians 5. And there is a lot of brokenness in the whole area of separation and divorce and this whole subject of remarriage that I cannot take on today other than to let you know that the heart of Jesus is a heart for reconciliation. But that reconciliation can only come from having a kingdom heart and to get people to turn towards Jesus working in that broken marriage, in that broken relationship. He does not boot people to the curb that have gone through the brokenness of divorce. Some of you who are divorced in this room, you would say, yep, I didn't sign up for that. How many of you would like to go out and get a divorce this week? Does that sound like the good life to you? No. Why? is because divorce breaks something that God intended to be mutually experienced, marriage, for a lifetime. And that brokenness will carry with you for the rest of your life. It's like a child that doesn't get the nourishment that they have in the early months of their life. You can't make up for that. Or a child that doesn't get the affection of a loving mother in the early parts. You can't make up for some of that in life. Well, divorce ends up scarring and breaking and hurting what God intended for marriage to be when a husband and a wife, a man and a woman would come together and the two would become one flesh. And that bond would represent the beauty of God's relationship with his church. He has this grand heart for it. And he sees a culture, and it's true in our culture. I just give him a pink slip here or there, whatever. Yeah, whatever. I, I can't believe she did that or hurt me with this. And he's like, wait a second, stop. You heard it was said, if you divorce, give a pink slip. And 
And Jesus does not push back against that. He does not say that infidelity, he was of the camp of the rabbi who said, except for the cause of marital unfaithfulness, physical marital unfaithfulness. But he wants their perspective to shift. No divorce is in practice. And so anybody in that situation here online or somebody, friend that you're trying to counsel and talk to, you let them know this. Jesus can heal brokenness. But it's him that has to work in both people to heal that brokenness. And our disposition, being of the new student kingdom orientation, is for the heart of the king, the source of the right actions be placed at the center of our lives and of our marriages. Just real quick, these other three then. Wanting someone to believe something, verses 33 through 37. Again, you heard it, that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill the Lord, uh, fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven or its footstool or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, and do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no, and anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Much to could be unpacked here as well, but what was happening in that time in that particular day was there were a lot of shenanigans about people trying to impress one another with, hey, I swear by God, or I swear on a stack of Bibles, this to be true. And there was a lot of manipulation and twisting and turning of people's words. And Jesus said, you heard it was said, keep vows and oaths made to convince. But I say to you, only say how things are or not. No verbal manipulation of people in your language. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. And let's stop the shenanigans of all these vows because you think, oh, God said it's a vow that I'm really going to... You keep it. And, and those kinds of things were true that day if you made an oath and not to break the oath. But Jesus saw the manipulation that was under it. So that was situation number four. Situation number five, being personally injured. Verse 38, you got it? You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn with the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Here was the situation. Jesus was saying in the old rightness, you heard it was said, inflict exactly the same injury on the offender. Now that sounds sort of bad, like an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of deal. But it was really a, a, a justice system of equality. In other words, if somebody stole $100,000 from you, in court, the verdict couldn't be that they had to pay back more than $100,000. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So there was this justice system that was operating in that day that said, well, equal. And Jesus says, yeah, but if you're a kingdom student, in my kingdom, I say to you, don't harm, but help the one who damaged you. Really? Yeah. Doesn't that sound more beautiful? A world to live in? Then somebody says, I'm getting my due back. They did this. I went back. They took my catalytic converter. I want my catalytic converter back, right? How do I help them? Because his kingdom heart in us is going to be for their goodwill. It doesn't mean that justice should not be served. But he's saying to you, in my kingdom, it goes beyond just an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. If someone wants you, it wants to sue you, give your shirt, but then give your coat too. If someone, a soldier, forces you to carry his belongings one mile, say, I'll take it too. Why? Because Jesus, his heart is living in you. And Jesus, he is saying, 
that it's the goodness that lives from that heart and through the kingdom among us that is the beauty of the good life, not just the focus on the external actions. And then the last one is having an enemy. Verse 43 through 48, it says this, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so with Jesus, concerning this situation of having an enemy, the old rightness, you've heard it said, hate your enemy. Now it's all right. Just stay away from him. But I say to you, what? Love and bless your enemy as the heavenly Father does. For that is kingdom rightness. So what you have are six situations, illustrations, where Jesus the preacher stands up in front of the mass on Sermon on the Mount, and he says, let me tell you about this new kingdom life. All of you are blessed to have the kingdom life. But when you enter into the kingdom life, the kingdom life that will fully come one day in its fullness, it's here at hand right now. And if you step into this realm with me, this is the kind of individual that I will make you become. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ living in us, through us, to reach others like us. The Christ in us, living through us, to bring about hope and encouragement and goodness into other people's lives. Jesus is adamant about this world changing now, not just in the future. But it will only change. It will only change if we pursue Actions based on the source, goodness that lives from the heart through the kingdom that is among us. So Jesus, when he said repent, when he said repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he was asking you and I to enter in, to enter in to his kingdom reign in our life situations today. For if any was in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. I can picture Jesus saying this to them, and we close with this sound of chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them, and he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's with childlike hearts that we turn from the divisiveness and the battles, the one-upmanship, all the antics that go on, and we choose to live in the kingdom and love people with the heart of the kingdom among us. Every one of us in this room have a situation right now that you're praying about and you're weighing your response to. Jesus would ask you to answer that situation based upon what his heart is. And in each of these situations, he was not discarding justice, but he was asking us, not to fall to the antics of the world or Satan who would like us to respond in inappropriate ways, but that we would live the kingdom in our world with every situation, every day. As Angela comes to close us and we'll receive the Lord's tithes and offerings, I want to pray for you because I know across this room and online there are situations that need a lot of wisdom. And even briefly running through these like we did today maybe causes more questions and brings answers. But the Lord Jesus, through his spirit, 
can give you wisdom in your situation how to respond with a kingdom heart that the kingdom is among us. Lord Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room who's wrestling, some people wrestling with deep, divisive things in their life, that by the power of your Spirit, you would first of all comfort them and let them know that your presence is near and that they are not forgotten. But then by the power of your Spirit, may you give them wisdom as they lift up and exalt you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And as they draw near to you, to hear your heart and how you would want them to respond. And it may be different from one situation to the next or how one person is called to lead next to another person, but that they would see that their actions are based not upon self-centeredness, reactiveness, or out of the hurt and the pain of their own life, but their actions in the situation that's at hand would be based upon their love for you and their desire for your kingdom to be at hand in that situation. So Lord, we do exalt you and we praise you. We come to you and we worship you this morning as do people across the whole world, acknowledging that you have brought a new day. That day is not fully culminated yet, but the kingdom of the future, when all things will be made new, is present today. May we live and participate in that, the good life, your kingdom life. And may we give you honor, praise, and glory. We'll sing together as the ushers come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings and your connect cards. If you have a particular prayer concern on those, place those there so we can pray for you. If you'd like to pray before the Lord at the altar this morning or to your right up here, a prayer area where someone prays with you, these are your moments to be able to join with that. But I'm going to ask you to stand.